You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Today, we have Kyle Bass, founder and CIO of Heyman Capital. He joins Real Vision's Rao Powell to take a deep dive into the state of global macro, specifically the bifurcation between capital markets and the real economy. These two macro dynamos guide viewers on a journey around the world, taking into account the chaos stemming from coronavirus, from restaurants and retail to European banks, to the permanent changes that this crisis will produce in human behavior and the economy. Finally, Bash shares his perspective on U.S.-China tensions both economically and politically and provides viewers with a few investment ideas that he plans on using to navigate the recovery from coronavirus and find the new normal. This is a great conversation between two maestros of the macro world. Kyle pulls no punches and I know viewers will find his perspective valuable. Kyle, good to get you back, my friend. It's been a while. It's uh, a pleasure haven't... to see you, Raoul. Yeah, we've been locked up in different places around the world, but how are you? Are you good? I, I'm good. Yourself? Yeah, fabulous. Can't complain. So I really wanted to pick your brains on what you're thinking right now, because you've, you know, you've been looking at a lot of different things, and I just wanted to catch up with you, and also try and get an idea of what you think happens next from here in whatever framework you're using. So let's start running through some of the key things that are on your mind. Yeah, as you know, I, I read uh, everything that you write. And uh, you and I haven't spoken uh, in, in a few months, uh, I would say, uh, let's say from an investment perspective. So uh, you, your writings and, and musings are, uh, have been spot on, uh, especially, especially during the, the Wuhan corona Chinese uh, flu virus. And um, I think going forward, I don't know whether it's age. I don't know whether it's a market experience. I don't know what has evolved my thinking over time. Maybe it's just uh, experience is, is, the, is the best uh, teacher, as, as we all know. It, but but I, what I see happening here is this huge disconnect, right? It, we're at this moment in time. We sit here. It's May 2020, 2020 being one of the worst years for many reasons, humanitarian, from a humanitarian perspective, from a medical perspective, from a markets perspective. Uh, it's been one of the worst years uh, that, that I've ever gone through so far, and we're only halfway through it. We're not even halfway through it. Uh, but there's this disconnect in valuations between you know, where stocks, equities are valued today, where bonds are valued today, and, uh, and really where, where economic activity really is. Uh, and um, and and the the other side of that is uh, you have the the largest central bank response I've ever seen to anything in my lifetime. It's the largest I've ever even read about. Uh, and so when you look at the various bills that have passed, and you look at the amount of fiscal expansion that that Congress has has authorized, uh, we're talking about you know the three plans so far uh, equate to more than fourteen percent of U.S. GDP, and so. Yes, I know 
that we're going to be at a 20% unemployment rate here in the U.S., which, again, we've never seen before. Um, and so how to square this circle of a depressive shot down and not just a recession. You know, I, we at our firm think that if you're down 10% real terms on GDP, that is a full depression. Down two or three, it's kind of a pretty significant recession. Uh, down 10 is a depression. And we're going to have quarter over quarter numbers that could get down 20, right? Because uh, we do quarter over quarter annualized on like Europe and yeah. their reporting. So it's important to note that uh, we have a situation today where we're expanding fiscally by 14% of GDP. The Fed has said they're going to buy uh, investment, investment grade credit. They're going to buy right bank debt, investment grade credit. They're going to buy high yield bonds. They're going to buy even CL pieces of CLOs. They're, they're one stop short of buying equities. And so when I think about the year, let's just say 2020 is a throwaway and let's look at 2021, 2022, we will come out of this. We will have drugs that treat it. We, this virus will be with us for many years, just like there's no cure for AIDS. It's around. It's a virus. Uh, and we now have drugs that treat it to where uh, the mortality rate is really low now. Uh, I think that will happen in this case. It will, it will, uh, it will kind of uh, incrementally get slightly better uh, over the next year, maybe, maybe quicker if we get a vaccine. Yeah, but the amount of stimulus is going to exceed the GDP decline, in, in our view. I think the GDP decline for the year is going to be somewhere about 8 to 10 in real terms in the U.S. And I think the amount of stimulus that we throw at this is going to be much larger. Now, stimulus is, you know, fiscal expansion is one. Fed lending is another. Fed lending is a loan, typically, uh, that has to be repaid at some point in time. But I, I think that's why we're seeing the resurgence in equity. So what I think is going to happen, which is counterintuitive and maybe, maybe completely uh, at, at odds with what you believe, I believe we're going to be back at new highs in the next 12 months for all of the reasons of Fed and Congress and not for the reasons of companies doing better, if you follow me, doing better certainly, than they were a year ago. I mean, certainly trading that way right now. doesn't. I mean, the Nasdaq's now up on the year. That's, that's, that's right. And so uh, imagine, look, then, you, then if I'm right, you think about what happens as we go into the presidential elections in November. The debate is going to be, uh, I think the presidential debates are going to be how this administration bailed out Wall Street and big business while 20% of the country is still out of a job. I mean, that's a tough one. Uh, because as we all know, you and I have discussed in the past, Fed, Fed policy, lower rates, negative rates, fiscal expansion, um, Fed money printing, the, a byproduct of the Fed trying to eliminate business cycles is a larger division between the haves and the have-nots, right? Because those with levered assets uh, do better. So asset prices go up. The middle class, those assets become more out of reach for the middle class because their incomes don't move as much and the poor stay poor. So this just stretches further and further and further. And uh, I think that's also going to be a net result of what's happening here. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. So do you think the economy 
comes back or do we get a dichotomy where a lot of this stimulus goes into the risk asset markets, call it equities and some credit, while the economy stays more sluggish? Are we going to see this bifurcation or do you think the economy, I mean, obviously the economy will pick up eventually, as you say, but it's it's at what point? You know, my view is that it probably lasts longer than people expect because I think there's a structural shift that may have occurred in some of this. And I don't think the unemployment comes back very quickly. So consumption remains low, behavior patterns until a vaccine comes and it just becomes yet another illness that we can all catch at some point and, you know, get some sort of cure for, well, not cure, but, you know, something that that minimizes the symptoms. It's that that I worry about. What do you, what do you think about that part of the equation? I, I think you're going to be right about the fact that people's proclivities may change uh, here, uh, here on forever. And uh I think the co- economy is going to come back faster than people think. I've been out um, talking with friends and looking uh, as things are just starting to reopen. Um, restaurants are starting to boom. People can't wait to get out. People can't wait to go back to the service economy and spend. And uh, there's and we've only we've been I say only we've been locked up for a couple of months, right? Uh, yeah. So I I think a large part of the economy is going to open up very quickly. I think the companies thinking about rehiring workers, I've seen a, a ton of, I've seen a bunch of surveys. I've seen Fed surveys and I've seen uh, private surveys. And uh, it's, it's pretty evenly distributed from the perspective of like 44% on average of CEOs think they're going to hire fewer people back uh, than, they, than they laid off. About 31% uh, think that they're going to um, hire exactly as many people back. Uh, as as uh, before, and another thirty percent or twenty eight percent are saying they have to hire more people, and so I think it's a redistribution of proclivities in in the economy. I.e., as we all know, online's gone much much uh, bigger, tech's going bigger. Um, the old economy, you know, uh, Berkshire Hathaway owning these giant Nebraska furniture marts that that may change. You know, Neiman Marcus filed bankruptcy this morning. J. Crew. Filed bankruptcy. The, those were, of course, LBOs, uh, and, and even Marcus, I think, was an LBO twice. Um, it went from an LBO firm to another LBO firm before it filed. Uh, but, but I think you're going to see. I think you're going to see parts of the economy come back with a vengeance. But then there are going to be other parts. Like, can you imagine spending a lot of time in New York City after uh, what we've seen? I think people's planning for business and, and pleasure travel. Some people will just keep going. Um, others will be more thoughtful and say, you know, the bacteria in New York City, the the dirt, the noise, the grime, the potential risk that I have in being there, it just isn't worth the pain. Now, we're sitting here on a telephonic uh, a video call. Um, I've been doing a lot of these from the house, and uh, it's it's been effective. I like to see you. I'd much rather see you than just be on the phone with you. But I'm not going to get on a plane to meet you in New York City anymore. You know, it's just uh, I'm going to change my life. Um, for a long time. And, that, and that's one of the things I'm thinking through is, you know, as we say, you know, we've had that shock. A lot of it comes back. But what is the marginal change? Because that's the thing that's going to mean whether GDP stays negative, you know, negative two, negative one for nine months, you know, three, mm-hmm. three more quarters, or whether we get back to some positive growth. Because to me, that's the difference between solvency and insolvency, because solvency mm-hmm. is cash flow issue. And if those cash flows don't return fast enough, I concern myself about solvency. How do you think through that? Yeah, I think the 
the frictional moment is that the CARES Act, uh, or let's say the fiscal expansion that the U.S. is engaged in, many people that have been laid off, I don't, I don't know if you know this or not, are making 20% more staying home than they made when they had a job due to the way the CARES Act uh, formulary works. And so that CARES Act lasts until the end of July. And so the I think the moment of truth is going to be when July rolls off, will we have to stimulate again and continue to pay these people that are that are still laid off, right? Uh, that's when the rubber is going to meet the road. Between now and July, we won't know the answer to that. I tell you, here's an interesting story. So, a friend of mine in Javier uh, in Spain, he owns six, seven restaurants, bars, nightclubs, that kind of thing, and he closed, and the government gave him money. And he could furlough his workers and they got supported money from the government and all OK. Spain's just opening up now. And they said, OK, you can open, but you can only have 30 percent of the tables and they all have to be outside. Right. And if you open. Then you have to you were not allowed to fire any workers. So all of the furlough, he's like, but I have to operate less than 30 percent capacity and I yeah. now can't change the number of headcount. So yeah. I'm just not going to open. It's kind of a right. yeah, fiscal stimulus is typical for this, right? It creates all sorts of weird distortions because they yes. rush things through and there's so much unintended consequences effect. And as you said, we just don't even know the answers to this stuff for a while until later in the summer, I guess. Yeah, I think I think you think about hotel companies and airlines and will they come back? Sure. Those kinds of companies need a critical mass well north of 75 percent just to break even. Right. Um, and I don't think 75% is coming for a, for a long time. Um, and so some industries are going to have a very difficult time with this, I think, for a, for a long time. Uh, and, and so restaurants, I actually think restaurants can get back to that 80, 90% uh, number uh, to where they were if the local authorities will allow them to get there. But you and I both know, you know, uh, a restaurant at 25, 30%, I mean, you lose money for, that's a certain money loser, right? Yeah, that's in, right. In the, US, in the U.S., they've allowed uh, to go or carry out uh, throughout this uh, crisis. So uh, it's probably a little different than maybe Spain or even Cayman. But um, the, the, the allowance of to go has allowed these restaurants to keep paying their workers. And the generosity of the patrons, uh, let's just say in the, in the uh, dine-in restaurants that are now taking out, uh, they've been tipping copiously to try to, let's say, pay it forward. And so I, I've seen the community rally around uh, the, the service businesses, and let's hope that continues. Yeah, my brother-in-law runs a restaurant in North Carolina. Uh, he's a restaurant owner and a chef. And same thing. I mean, they had to close and they had to furlough their workers. But takeout, um, you know, they, they set up, they do, um, yeah, they set up a, a weekly thing and that allowed them to sell enough to pay the rent so then they can just be in deep freeze for an extended period of time. And that's, again, the graciousness of the community and also the needs of people to just not bloody cook at home every day. I'm bored of cooking. I've been cooking for two months now. You know, it'd be nice to go out and get a meal somewhere. Yes, yes. Well, you know, you live you live in a paradise that uh, when locked up there, you know, it becomes a little bit more challenging, but you're a great chef. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, back to your point on liquidity versus solvency, I think that... Um, if this year, if we finish this year down seven to ten in real GDP, I mean that that is a it's it's a deep recession to a depression, 
and if our escape velocity uh, continues to stay positive into 2021, um, then we're, we can avoid, let's say, uh, massive insolvencies, right? I, I think that that's your point. We're already yeah. seeing we're seeing some of the weakest players, you know, drop like flies already, and and that there's something you know Darwinian about that, uh, you know, and and we'll get through these things. But uh, the the bigger problems are these proclivities of, of players, like how does the hotel business operate going forward? Uh, that's a big question. And, and then, and, and, and you have to separate it even from business travel to uh, vacation travel, because I still think people are going to want to go on vacation. Uh, yeah. And I don't think people are going to want to go uh, to business travel. So I think that it, figuring that out is important. But when we look at the banking sectors, I think you have to look at them regionally. So uh, you know, uh, in the last crisis that, that you and I uh, uh, focused on, the global financial crisis, the banks were the source of the problem, right? Yeah. And in this case, the beauty here is the banks are going to be uh, a large part of the, of the success of the, of the uh, rejuvenation efforts. So I think the banks are going to be a, a big part of the help this time as, a part of, as, as opposed to where they were last time in the U.S. Now in Europe, as we all know, they never recapitalized their banks. Um, the Spanish banks, more importantly, the Italian banks. So you have the Italian banks, the Greek banks, the Spanish banks. They never got recapitalized. They were hoping and betting on that future growth. And it was starting to work before the Wuhan virus showed up. Uh, you had some real positive trends in the European banks. And now all bets are off. Uh, and so... Yeah, what, what's your view on Europe? Because this is getting interesting to me. And I mean, I wrote in the last GMI about the, I mean, there was almost no answer. They either have to mutualize everything or they're going to have to walk away. Um, but this crisis feels like it's going to be the one. I mean, everyone's expanding their deficits by 25%. And everyone's saying, well, if it's a European Union and we have the word union, then you're supposed to be helping us. But what yeah. Germany and Holland said, sorry, it's each man for himself. What are you thinking about Europe now? Yeah, I, I, you know, Europe still doesn't have a central taxing authority. Uh, and when you talk about uh, a fighting force, you know, there's no, there's no European army, Navy, Air Force, Marines. It's, uh, there's a German army. There's an Italian army, right? There's a, that when you look at the EU, the only thing they've agreed to be, uh, to unify on is they, again, as per the Maastricht Treaty, they're trying to, at some point in time, normalize uh, fiscal deficits uh, and, and eliminate, you know, profligacy, but that's out the window right now, as we all know. But if you can't properly expand your own host country central bank balance sheet, then you've got a real problem. And the pigs of Europe have a real problem right now. Uh, and it's, it's, uh, it, we're back to the existential problem that we averted during the Euro crisis of call it 2011, 2012. We're right back there again in 2020. And uh, it's all up to the Germans. And uh, if the Germans decide uh, to change the capital key at the ECB and allow the ECB to print money uh, for their most troubled kids, um, then things will work out. But uh, without a central taxing authority and a unified fighting force and a euro bond, um, uh, I don't know how they're going to get through this. And so it, here we are once again, you know, eight, nine years later, facing the same problem on a much larger scale than we faced in 2011. And yet what I find fascinating is bond spreads aren't acting like they did in 2011 because everyone's been conditioned to think that the central banks will always be there uh, writ large, no matter what. 
So do you think that's the opportunity or is the opportunity, because one of the things I'm looking at is the euro, which looks like very close to breaking down. And I kind of feel that the euro needs to be trading 80 cents before somebody in Europe makes a decision because the bond spreads aren't moving. Or do you think the bond spreads might move and it's just investor behavior right now that's kind of ignoring that trade? So that's a it's a great question, Raoul. And, you know, at the beginning, if they allow those bond spreads to move, uh, what will happen is, as you probably know, the euro will strengthen because euro euro rates uh, will then trade a little higher than U.S. rates. Uh, and that will be a head fake. And we're seeing a head fake like that in Hong Kong as we speak. Uh, so it's important to note that uh, when things trade on rates, which is how they normally trade, uh, traders uh, have a very specific uh, modus operandi. And then they realize, oh, shit, or maybe we can't say that here on, yeah. on Real Vision, kind of thrilled, but sure. they say, they say, oh, shit, this is a credit problem. This isn't a rates problem, right? And so I think we're going to see some, some disconnects on credit uh, in the next year or two, regardless of how much we bounce back. I think you and I both know we're not going to bounce back to where we were uh, prior to the, the Wuhan virus. We're just trying to get – we're trying to understand how long it's going to take to get back to a level like that. Now, could, could stocks go higher than where they were prior to the virus? Yes, because of the fiscal expansion and the and the central bank activity, uh, but true economic activity is going to be a while. It's going to be a while before it gets back to where we were. But what you're what I'm hearing from you now, we've just talked about Europe versus the U.S. I mean, it sounds that the U.S. is probably better set up in this again. So that outperformance of U.S. equities versus European equities, which has been an enormous trend, probably continues. The U.S. probably still continues to suck in capital flows from around the world for these very reasons. Is that is that how you see it? Yeah. When, when I look around the world, Raul, and clearly there are going to be pockets that are interesting places to invest. But if you look at the world, where where will where would you invest your, let's say, you know, core bedrock capital? Um, and we can we can do a trip around the world. You know, we'll start in, in Asia, uh, the Asian banks. Uh, whether you're in China at 350% of GDP or you're in Hong Kong at almost 900% of assets of GDP in your banks. And uh, Hong Kong, uh, their most recent GDP print quarter over quarter two days ago was down 20, down 20% real terms, quarter over quarter annualized. I mean, you can't possibly have your money in Asia right now. You want to put your money in Europe? We just went over the existential crisis that the euro area is, again, facing once again. Um, I, I can't do it. Um, South America, the, the Argentinian peso in the black market's now over 100. Brazil is unhooked. Like, where are you going to put your money? I think the, the, the best place in the world is the U.S. It's not because I live here. I would invest anywhere. Uh, it's just uh, it, it's the right yeah, place. It's, it's really, really difficult to find anywhere else to put your capital. And yeah. that's you know, many people get bearish on the U.S. bond market for, you know, issuance reasons, whatever. I'm like, where else do you put your capital? The U.S. Yeah. bond market is probably the safest tower in the world. And yeah. why would you not? One of the biggest debates that you have that you've been so spot on with and you have fought uh, a valiant uh, <laughs> uh, and, and uh, a sometimes vicious fight uh, you know, on, online is, you know, you keep saying the dollar is going to continue to strengthen and, you know, all of these, the gold bugs and the, uh, the, the <laughs> I mean, I've seen the people come after you and you're spot on. The dollar is already it is already uh, supreme. Seventy uh, percent of global transactions settle in dollars every single day. And yes, we're printing more uh, dollars, but 
you know, it's just like 2008. Uh, we had a $23 trillion economy that was basically turned off for two months, maybe three, as we, as we come back into, into trying to get back to, to some sort of sense of normalcy. Well, that's, that means you're going to have to print five or six trillion just to fill the hole. Uh, and right. so if you're, if you're filling a hole, uh, it's, not, it's not expansionary. And, and it's, you've made this point, it's debt and deflation. So the first, the first printing is to try to avoid excessive deflation. And then once we get back to some level of, of normalcy and economic activity and we keep expanding, then you go from deflation to, to inflation. And also one of my key findings, I mean, I just, it came to me on, uh, on Friday when I was writing GMI, was that, as you say, the dollar is 70% of the liquidity of the currency markets. The next is the euro and then the yen and then the pound and the Aussie and stuff. So a trillion dollars from the US in printing is not worth the same as a trillion dollars worth of euros by the ECB because the liquidity is a fraction of it. It's like 30% of the US dollar liquidity. So that trillion has a much larger effect, which is one of the reasons people look at the Fed printing, say they're printing more, the dollar should be going down. I'm like, no, no, no. On a liquidity adjusted basis, the ECB have just blown it out of the park again. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's an interesting way to look at it. Now, this, this whole thing, so I want to move on from Europe and the US. I think we're both, you know, roughly in the green. We don't know how long this thing plays out, but, you know, and I don't know about the equity market. As you know, I've, I've kind of said I don't really know how to play that equity market. You could be right um, or, or it could trade off from here. But what I'm really interested in is some of Asia. You know, I don't understand how Hong Kong can go through the riots and the shutdown that came from that, the GDP hit, with tourism getting decimated, and then this, and they haven't devalued their currency. It's kind of like, what what is going on, and where are we in this bloody cycle? You know, I uh, I just oh, had a debate with with uh, our our good friend Louis Gov. Um, right. You know, um, God bless Louis. Uh, he is such. He's been. He's been a, a panda hugger since China uh, began to to really open, and he's been he's been right. And and Govkal is someone that that uh, we've used as a consultant. Louis's been a friend of mine for oh I don't know twenty years. Um, uh, but his it, a lot of times when people's entire livelihood is based upon the fact that we need this uh, Asian juggernaut to just keep moving higher. Uh, they can't see the forest through the trees. And um, I think it's important to note, you just made a great point. You know, uh, people that say, well, Kyle, you're, you're so negative on Hong Kong. Hong Kong made it through the Asian financial crisis of 1997. You know, they had 75% real estate declines from July 1st, 1997, to call it middle of 2003, and not one bank failed. And most Hong Kongers paid their mortgages and they moved on. That is such a perfect analogy because Hong Kong cut rates, call it, you know, 500 basis points, five to 800 basis points uh, along the way. And the only thing that saved Hong Kong then from breaking completely apart is think about this. China ascended to the WTO in 2001 and, their, and became Hong Kong's largest trading partner. And they grew like a weed from 2002, three, all the way until the global financial crisis, uh, and then they grew ten, double digits from 2008 to 2000, but roughly 15, 16, right? 
So this time, you have private sector credit to GDP at 300% Hong Kong. In the US and Japan, it's 150. It's now 300 there. The banking system is as levered as Iceland and Ireland and Cyprus was going into the euro crisis. And we know how fast those dominoes fell. And 36 years of implied or uh, uh, of, of believed stability doesn't beget another 36 years of stability. You have a rigid system and a dynamic framework. And the dynamism of the world markets and the dynamism of their particular level of leverage uh, can't that, that, that identity can't just maintain itself given the extremes by which they have uh, achieved uh, credit imbalances in, in this cycle. And if you just look at the EM currency neighborhood, people say, are we going to have an EM crisis? I said, well, I don't know what you call it when the entire basket of EM currencies is 20 to 30 percent down in four months. When do yeah. you start calling it a crisis? Does it have to go down 50 just think about the enormity of these moves that we're seeing. And first of all, in, in the region, right, in the Indonesian uh, 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 currency, in the Thai bot, uh, and, and then you go to Chinese currencies like uh, China, China trading currencies like the Brazilian Riai, the Mexican peso, the Argentinian peso. Argentina's now, the Argentinian peso is now north of a, a hundred in the black market. Um, yeah, you can just go through. Uh, you can go through the list of them, and you put you put them all on a chart, and you say, "Hmm, you know, um, it's already a crisis." And by the way, we're just getting started. And you know, one of Louis's arguments is, "Well, the Fed's printing six, you know, uh, uh, three trillion dollars, you know, and Hong Kong's pegged to the dollar. So who's to say that there's a shortage of dollar liquidity in Hong Kong?" And like, I don't even know where to begin with that argument. You know, it, you you have this. Hong Kong has this crucible of economic uh, rigidity that is being uh, uh, hit by, by a, a tsunami of global negative actions and global economic uh, uh, declines, potential depressive declines, as you see in Hong Kong's numbers so far. Uh, and they've got the politics. They've got China moving in and asserting themselves in Hong Kong's daily activities. Just yesterday, I'm not sure if you saw Secretary, Pom uh, Secretary of State Pompeo made a statement because as part of the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act that the U.S. Congress passed last year unanimously, um, as part and parcel of that, he has to write a letter to Congress explaining whether or not the State Department thinks Hong Kong is still, quote, sufficiently autonomous. What Pompeo just said is, he says, I've got to delay this letter because the, the, the new uh, meeting of, of China's uh, ruling party is May 22nd. And we have to see if they're going to, quote, further erode the autonomous autonomy and freedoms of the Hong Kong people. And so, you know, that's the shot across the bow for the U.S. and the U.K. to change our relationship with Hong Kong. So Hong Kong is um, something that that people aren't paying attention to. And it's it is the it is the forefront of the ideological clash between Marxist Leninist socialism uh, and Western democracy. And we know which one works better. And China's propaganda outlets are out there saying that they know what's best and that they work better. But I'll, I'll draw, you like history. I'm going to draw a couple of historical parallels that, that I don't think people have connected uh, the dots with. In 1980, you had Margaret Thatcher and Deng, Deng Xiaoping starting to talk about the handoff of Hong Kong from the British 
back to the Chinese after a hundred years plus of the century of humiliation, they called it in China, because uh, Great Britain, you know, uh, controlled Hong Kong and Kowloon and the and the whole area after, as you know, two sets of wars. Um, in these discussions, they started to leak out in the newspapers back in the early eighties. The Hong Kong dollar depreciated fifty percent versus both the pound and the dollar between 1981 and 1983. In fact, that, that panicked depreciation uh, is what precipitated the need to peg the Hong Kong dollar to something else that was deemed to be not a banana republic, uh, a global currency. So they pegged it to the U.S. dollar, even though Great Britain controlled Hong Kong. They decided the U.S. dollar peg uh, would help them the most, and they were right. But think about this. What caused that decline? It was the good people of Hong Kong and people that were investing in a region that had been ruled by British, British law, right? Uh, a proper English law, the, the, uh, 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 something that very much resembles the U.S. rule of law. And um, the people were used to maintaining their personal freedoms. They, had, they have their human rights and they had their uh, assets invested somewhere where they knew they could adjudicate in a court if some, someone was wrong. So the fear at the time was, oh, my God, you know, communist China is about to take over. I'm going to just take my money out. That's why the Hong Kong dollar uh, uh, depreciated so rapidly until they pegged it. And then in 1984, you, you know, uh, what happened is uh, uh, the British and the Chinese signed the Sino-British uh, Joint Declaration of 1984, which stipulated that once handed over, China would allow this uh, uh, one country, two systems framework uh, until 2047. They signed a 50-year deal from 1997 to 2047. And um, fast forward to the day of the handover. And this is where, this is again, where I don't think people uh, have really thought through what happened. January, or sorry, uh, July 1st, 1997 was the handoff of Hong Kong back to the Chinese from the British. July 1st, 1997. Do you know what happened on July 2nd, 1997? The Thai bot broke the, broke its head, uh, yeah, and it be and so began the Asian financial or Asian currency crisis of ninety seven ninety eight. Raul, it is not a coincidence that the day the Chinese took possession of Hong Kong, the very next day the currency crisis happened. It happened going in in nineteen eighty three. It happened again in nineteen ninety seven. And look at what's happening now politically. You have. The Chinese tried to get, they tried to slide in an extradition law into, the, into a Hong Kong le legislative uh, bill in February of 2019. That precipitated 2 million plus Hong Kongers with umbrellas peacefully protesting in the streets in June of, of last year, of 2019. 2 million of 7.5 million. Imagine 2 million people protesting, potentially losing their, their ability uh, to use a real English court system to adjudicate um, allegations by a foreign government, right? I.e., China's mitts are now coming into Hong Kong, and that's what—that's why those protests went from peaceful uh, in call it the beginning of last year, middle of last year, to so violent um, into the end of last year. It's because the Hong Kong people were saying. We are supposed to have 27 years more of personal freedom, of autonomy, of legal and economic freedoms from China. 
And what China is saying now, if you look at who they just put in charge, they, I don't know if you followed who, who the Beijing's man now in charge of Hong Kong is. It's this guy named Liu Huning. And he was the butcher of Tibet. He was the one who assimilated the Tibetans and the Falun Gong. He's the one that brought the hammer down on the uh, religious groups in China and, and incarcerated them and did live organ harvesting. He is, he is a bad man. And guess what? He's now Beijing's man in charge of Hong Kong, and he doesn't even speak Cantonese. Like, all you have to do is understand what Beijing's doing here. That's sending last, a message. It's sending a message. So you have, you have the worst possible economic situation you could possibly put together in an architecture. You have a rigid peg. You have with a banking. All of your neighbors devaluing. And with, you, live in a, you live in a bad EM neighborhood, right? Uh, and your financial system architecture couldn't be worse today with, you, with the leverage and the, uh, the economy doing what it's doing. And under the darkness of this Wuhan virus, China's been moving to, I'm probably, you probably saw last weekend, they arrested the top 15 pro-democracy supporters in Hong Kong. They went to their homes and they perp-walked them out of their homes. They arrested Martin Lee. Martin Lee is 81 years old. Martin Lee is the person who was one of the architects of Hong Kong's basic law. He wrote Hong Kong's basic law. He's known as the father of democracy in Hong Kong. And they dragged him out of his house and arrested him. They arrested Jimmy Lai, the owner of the Apple Daily, the billionaire tycoon, who actually tells it how it is without uh, Chinese censorship. They, re- they pulled him out of his home. And a couple hours later, there were videos of police throwing petrol bombs at his house. So what's happening now is China is bringing in the sledgehammer. They are trying to squash any opposition to China's op- operating uh, and helping operate uh, Hong Kong's uh, daily affairs. So there's this Article 22 of the Basic Law basically stipulates that China must stay out of the daily affairs. They must stay out of uh, um, influencing right, the legislature, influencing the economy, and influencing the, uh, the legal system. And China is infringing on all three. So all of Hong Kong's scholars have been opining in white papers and in articles for the last two weeks that China is infringing on Article 22 of the Basic Law. China is saying that they don't uh, they're not governed by Hong Kong's laws. They own Hong Kong and they can basically do what they want. That's what's being said. And that's why Pompeo said what he said uh, yesterday. So why is capital to go back to the kind of financial market architecture? Why is capital not fleeing and what's the what's the technicality that's pushing the currency to the top of the band? You yeah, know, so so, so this is understand what's going on here. This is this is important to understand. If you have a banking system as levered as they are, and and it's split between HKD and USD and banking system assets, let's assume for the for the purposes of this call, it's 50-50. It's not, but it's close. Um, if you're levered that much in your banks and you don't have a real central bank, the HKMA is not a real central bank. They can't print money. Right. So they can't expand the financial system uh, themselves. Uh, and they also uh, when you think about this banking collapse, if you have 850 percent of GDP in your banks and all of a sudden you have a collapse in real estate values and you have a collapse in tourist arrivals, tourist arrivals are at zero. Right. Uh, retail sales are down 40 percent. Uh, everything is collapsing in Hong Kong. And if you're having that kind of collapse, what do you have? You have a desperate need for capital in the interbank market. And therefore, when you look at at exchange fund bills and you look at uh, interbank uh, lending rates, they're much higher than U.S. 
interbank lending rates because U.S. banks are, are solvent at the moment. And uh, our system is, uh, let's say, much better capitalized than theirs. So this is that moment in time where Hong Kong borrowing rates overnight in the interbank world are higher than U.S. rates, which traders immediately equate to, oh, well, we need to own Hong Kong dollars instead of U.S. dollars. So it's, it's, that, it's a moment where the, the, the squeeze in the currency markets in Hong Kong or in the capital needs of Hong Kong is causing their rates to move higher. And the traders don't see it as a complete disaster. They just see it as a rates move. But surely they're going to they're in a deflationary environment, right? So the worst oh. thing to happen is their rates go up. Oh, exactly. Because you then rot out the whole domestic leveraged economy. I mean, that's the whole point is the insolvency caused by rising real rates in a situation like that is a is a nightmare. So it's it's important to note that this if you just look back to Thailand breaking its peg in, in 1997, what happened is they Thailand's currency strengthened almost four percent before it broke 60% because of this phenomenon. There was a suck. There was a huge need on capital. The banking system had to pay huge overnight rates. And as those rates ticked up, people were starting to buy the, the Thai bot. And they didn't realize that they were about to fall off a cliff. And that's exactly where people in Hong Kong are today. So let's move on to the mainland. So China, it looks, you know, like all of us do, we follow the currency. It looks like it's going to break at some point. It looks like something's going to happen. Now, obviously, the China-US and, well, China world tension is now rising. I think you know the, the US center of gravity, the anti-China movement has grown to both sides of the house, and now it's sucking in more nations. And I think you know it's becoming a much stronger movement across the world to say, look, China is not our friend, as you've been saying for a long time now. Um, it feels that somewhere with the amount of dollars the Chinese corporations have borrowed, and you've talked about the tightness of funding there, this thing cannot sustain in a world where there's no trade going on. Sure, it's even worse, actually, when trade opens up because people have to pay bills and there's no dollars to pay the bills with. Mm. Are you seeing the risk that this Chinese currency finally actually starts to make more moves than, than, than you know, just a few percent? Yeah, I mean, look, the one-year forward CNH, I think, is around 720 today. And um, I, I can't imagine a world where it doesn't go north of 10 in the next two years, right? I, I mean, they, they, China intervenes almost nightly to prop up its own currency. This is where uh, guys like Peter Navarro and, and, and the U.S. administration was occurring, you know, accusing China of currency manipulation right away. Uh, and and uh, they, were, they were manipulating it all right. They're manipulating it higher. And this is what China's um, uh, narrative bureau, or as you know, many of their Foreign Service uh, agents and their their uh, propaganda outlets have successfully convinced many parts of the world that their system is a viable alternative and competitor to Western democracy. And this Marxist-Leninist socialism works. And that look look at us, our economy. We're now 15% of global GDP. But Raoul, when you and I look at this, they claim to be 15% of GDP in dollar terms, and we give them the conversion rate at the current spot rate of Chinese currency to U.S. dollars, they have a closed capital account. Less than 1% of global transactions that are cross-border settle in Chinese currency. And it's not changing anytime soon. And so they're a bit of a, they're a Potemkin village. If they were to open their capital account, Rao, their currency would drop 50% or yeah. more, yeah. right? And so if their currency was down 50, what would their economy be? I'm not arguing that they don't have an economy. 
I'm arguing that it's not a $13 trillion economy. It's more like a six or a seven, right? Because and, we're and converting the dollars. Yeah. And, you know, so you could, that could play out over time. It could adjust slowly, which is what I think they're trying to do, or it adjusts quickly. Again, I've always said that it's bad things happen in recessions. Mm. Probability of it not going to 10 is extremely low to me in yeah. an environment like this. The yeah. only thing is, is if you're right and growth comes back a little bit faster, they might be able to dodge the bullet. But if growth, if anything drags that growth lower, global growth lower for a, a longer period of time, there is no dollars in the world for them. Mm. There's no swap lines. There's no liquidity for them. There's nothing. As you said, they've, they've stopped capital leaving the country, even from U.S. corporations who are there to keep hold of the dollars. Can you explain to everybody... You raise a key point, I think, in the past about the, the reserves. Everyone goes, they've got reserves and they can just sell these treasuries and they've got – and, like, and you've always said those reserves aren't usable for this. Yeah. I mean, look, we've even had debates with chief economists from the, from the Communist Party uh, brokerage firms uh, in, in China. They've come, come to see us and we've had some debates where they actually don't want to talk anymore uh, because we put their own data in front of them and ex ask them to explain it. Uh, when you look at the composition of their reserves, first of all, if you remember, and the world just seems to forget things very quickly, as China wanted so desperately to be included in the IMF's SDR basket, uh, and one of the one of the concepts or one of the basic requirements of being included in the SDR basket is is your currency freely tradable, <laughs> and um, it's freely usable, freely tradable. It's just not. And of course, the IMF wanting to hug the panda decided that, yeah, we're going we're gonna to expect them to further open up their economy and further open their capital account and make it more tradable. And therefore, we're going to give them a pass. Oh, and in exchange for that pass, China promised that within two years of their addition to the SDR basket in the IMF, that they would disclose the composition of their reserves. Well, that kind of came and went, Raoul. I still haven't seen that. And so when you look at their reserves... Uh, they say they're about $3 trillion. They own $1 trillion worth of treasuries. Now, uh, even if you go back to looking at the, at the um, formation of CIC, their sovereign wealth fund, um, they, they, when, when you look at the accounting entries that they went into, they were supposed to take $200 billion out of reserves, create the, the foreign uh, sovereign wealth uh, fund. And so there should have been, there should have been an accounting entry um, at their reserve level of minus 200 billion to create that fund. And they're gonna invest in private equity around the world and long-term assets and structural assets. And those are not reserves, right? Those are long-term uh, strategic investments for the, for the country. Well, they never subtracted the 200 billion. And in fact, its value keeps going higher as they mark up their investments and they count that as reserves. So when I think about liquid reserves, we think they have a, they, they have a little less than two trillion. Now. When you use, when you're a country like China, you, you have two worlds that you live in. Your domestic world is all your own currency, right? Their, RM, their own banking system, their domestic businesses, everything they do in China is RMB based, right? They control everything. They control the printing press. They control the police. They actually control the price level and they control, they control the narrative, right? China is a full uh, authoritarian, totalitarian controlled economy on the RMB side. However, 
China has to interface with the rest of the world. And when they interface with the rest of the world, no one takes their funny money. Everyone takes dollars. So the way that you think about their reserves is it's working capital. They have to buy things and settle things and, and import them. And they export things for dollars. They import things for dollars. But just like you and I, if we ran a multinational corporation and we had a, we'd have to have a big balance sheet of working capital to transact all over the world and settle all over the world. So as their RMB economy grows, in the past, their dollar balances had to grow because you have to grow working capital as your economy grows. Yeah, and they mirror each other. And what's happening now is their, their reserves have collapsed to, now they stopped reporting reserve declines at $3 trillion. They started forward selling uh, in the forward market over half, half a trillion dollars of reserves, so they don't have to report it on the actual side. So they're, they're, they're cooking their books. And they're, while their RMB economy is supposedly growing, their dollar balances aren't. This is why you see the Belt and Road program dialed up as fast as they could get Belt and Road going. Because you know the scheme there is they send Chinese slave labor to places like North Africa and Southeast Asia to build these Belt and Road projects, these railroads, these dams, these toll roads, whatever they're building, and all of the revenues in what they're building is in dollars. And all these development banks, like the World Bank, the African Development Bank, they all pay for the projects in dollars. So the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative is a way for the Chinese to suck dollars out of Africa and suck dollars out of Southeast Asia. The other thing they're doing, as you've probably seen, is they've co-opted or even coerced people like MSCI and the FTSE to include Chinese equities in global indices at much higher levels than China represents in global GDP. And the way they've done that, we don't have to get into. But that's the blood that's growing the Chinese communist tumor is U.S. dollars. And I can tell you, Raul, in the next 12 months, you're going to see new policies coming out of the U.S. government that are going to make it infinitely harder for foreign corporations, including those that happen to be Chinese, to grab dollars, U.S. investment dollars. As you probably saw, President Trump just is about to veto the thrift savings plan of the U.S. military and Congress from investing in Chinese indices because members of those indices are companies like Hikvision, companies like AVIC, companies like China Shipbuilding that are building the Chinese military juggernaut. We're not going to have our military savings going to build the ships and the missiles and the guns that are aimed at us in the South China Sea. It's kind of, it's, it's unconscionable that it's happening. But even greater than that, as you probably know, Rel, Chinese companies today don't have to adhere to U.S. audit standards. They don't have to adhere to, to SEC rules. So what, what we need to do as a country is just level the playing field and said, if you want to raise dollars from U.S. investors, you're going to adhere to U.S. law. How about that? You're going so, to have to do everything that U.S. companies do. So this brings us on to where I want to finish up in this is, is two parts. One is, what, how do you think the politics in the U.S. plays out with regards to China? Because I think mm-hmm. it's crucial. I think it's crucial for people to understand this because if it does continue to tighten or harden the policy line against China, you know, again, it has very big ramifications for stuff like the U.S. dollar. Um and for China itself and for Hong Kong and a whole bunch of other things, all emerging markets, a bunch of stuff. Uh, and then the other side is I, I want to finish off with what are your thoughts going into the election cycle as well? Because it's a very interesting here, election. Here we, are, here we are at Real Vision and we're about to talk politics. Well, you know, as you've been telling me, it's coming, right? You can't avoid, you can't avoid an election this big. 
But let, let's go through the China thing, because I know you spent a bit of time um, in Washington talking to people about, you know, what things are developing. How, how, how's the attitudes on kind of both sides of the house and, and, and what's going what's going forwards? Yeah, I mean, as you saw, you know, where where in the world have you seen in the last 12 months where both sides voted for anything unanimously? There's only one place, right? The Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act. That went it literally only one person in the U.S. Congress voted against it and the whole Senate voted for it. So it basically went full unanimity uh, uh, all the way through. Uh, you have you have a realization from the U.S. intelligence and military complex that is absolutely bipartisan, believe it or not. Uh, they realized that everything that China has been doing from an espionage perspective, from a theft perspective, from uh, uh, reneging on agreements, and, and then also doing everything they can to lie, cheat, and steal their way through the world and grab dollars and then act as the victim all over the world and you play the racist card when anyone uh, calls them out for their ac activities. I think we now understand the modus operandi of the Chinese government, and we are going to use, you know, one thing that's been said at the U.S. National Security Council level is, we're never going to outlie, outcheat, outsteal, outbribe the Chinese government. We won't stoop to their lows. That's how they operate. What we will do is start to enforce our own rule of law. If we just simply level the playing field and enforce the rule of law against foreign companies and foreign actions, and we adjudicate uh, those actions here in the U.S. And in, and in Europe and in Australia and places where you have rules of law, then... Uh, Western democracy wins, right? If there's free trade, unrestricted, unabetted free trade, China wins because they cheat. Um, if there's fair trade, the West wins. And so I think what you're seeing from both sides of the aisle, uh, whether you're talking about uh, somewhere like the DOJ uh, and the FBI that's, that is start, that's going to start indict some of these companies for their bribery and things that they do around the world that happen to have US presence, uh, or whether you're talking about acting on national security, like we're clearly we're about to put through laws that require domestic uh, drug production in the U.S. That frog boiled very slowly until uh, the frog came to a boil. And, and uh, this this crisis uh, made us realize that um, 90 percent of the active pharmaceutical ingredients for our, all of U.S. antibiotics are made in China. That's not so going to happen think, very much longer. So do you think that the government is going to tighten up the supply chain issue with China? Because, it, you know, clearly, it, it, as you say, it, it showed the ridiculous fragility embedded in something so important. Yeah, I that mean, has to change. Think about this, Raul. You saw Japan uh, offer to pay for the entire relocation of any Japanese supply chain back into Japan. Uh, and, you, and you immediately saw U.S. authorities say, we would definitely consider doing that as well. So you have a, what I'm telling you, Raul, is there's a whole of government approach here. This is not a Democrat idea. It's not a Republican idea. It's a U.S. national security issue. And everybody realizes this now. Uh, and the Chinese game is now out in the, in the bright light uh, to see. And the fact that China, if you remember just a, a month or so ago, the Chinese authorities, the official authorities, threatened to withhold medicine exports from China, drug exports from China to the U.S., if President Trump didn't stop calling it the Wuhan virus. I mean, just think about that particular situation. 
we're going to withhold your medicine if you don't do exactly what we say you should do uh, in your communications with your people. Okay, that is how they operate. And I think they misplayed their hand there. And that that for anyone that wasn't on board in the whole of government approach, that that did wonders uh, to move people over. So you're going to see whole of government approach just protecting U.S. national security. We kind of opened our doors and hoped everything was going to go fine. And now we've realized that kind of we've let the CCP virus into many supranational institutions like the World Bank, like the ADB, like many of the WHO. We've seen China's influence on many of these organizations become outsized, and they do it through the back channels, through bribery, through everything that they, through every way that they operate. We now see this, and we're going to start pushing back. I just can't believe it took this long. No. Um, okay, so here we go. And we, we, this is going back to the beginning of our conversation. We go into a U.S. election, and the unemployment rate's going to be, what, 15%? Yeah, probably. Probably. That's, you're probably you're actually spot on with that guess, I bet. <laughs> I don't know how this plays out. Depends whether Trump can find enough blame elsewhere to say it's not my fault, or whether the people are angry because they're still in the same mess they were always in, which is they've never really got themselves on their feet, which was what was promised to them. How does that play out into an election? Do we polarize even further, or does it create a change of narrative or are we never going to get a change of narrative with two 70-year-old-plus presidents? What, what do you think? It's, it's difficult for an incumbent to lose, but, but look at who the incumbent is. Uh, and, and I mean that by saying, you know, sometimes he just can't help himself. If he, if he, just, if he just focused on the facts uh, and he didn't have two-hour-long <laughs> press conferences, you know, he would, he would, he would be the sure winner. Um, if I were to handicap it right now here today, um, I think Trump's a 55% favorite, um, despite any polls that you see. Uh, but that's that is not that does not mean I think he's getting reelected. I think that I think that there the the I hate Trump votes a big one, uh, and I think uh, these allegations for Biden uh, against Tara Reid that's uh, that has accused him of these things that's going to have to be adjudicated. I think publicly before. Uh, the election happens, which I think actually levels that levels that playing field uh, between he and Trump. I really think it's going to be a coin toss uh, between between these two, you know, old guys. And the question that I have is: Would will Biden's policies be substantially different from a foreign policy perspective uh, than Trump's? And I would I'd be willing to believe that uh, China would much rather see Biden in the seat. Uh, than Trump in the seat, even though they have guys like Mnuchin and and Jared who have been basically fighting for China behind the scenes, and everybody else is is fighting for truth. And so uh, I think you're going to have a I think you're going to have an election that is completely bipolar or polarized, uh, maybe both. Um, and, it's not uh, good, though, is it? It's not good for America to keep doing this, right? To tear no, people like this. No, and and you know you have it's interesting. I don't know if you saw. Uh, Fink's uh, piece yesterday talking yeah. about we're going to see higher corporate tax rates. It's going to be a disaster. I mean, Fink is basically a Chinese Communist Party uh, shill in the United States, right? You know, what they do, what they've done is they give certain billionaires special access to the U.S. And those billionaires become evangelical. They also become lobbying arms of the CCP in the U.S. So 
whether you have Fink or Schwartzman or you have Adelson or Wynn or Ray Dalio, they are evangelical about the greatness of China because all they see is their pocketbook growing bigger because they have a special access deal with China. But you see what Fink's saying. Fink is saying, oh, we're going to have to raise corporate tax rates. We're going to have repression in the U.S. We're going to have all, remember, he was saying terrible things yesterday. That's exactly what the Chinese want him to say, right? And so it's important to note that if it's Biden, uh, you know, he wants a, a cap gains tax rate close to the income tax rate. He wants corporate taxes to go back from 20 to 30. It's a 50% increase in corporate taxes. That is a massive contractionary uh, event uh, that will happen in the U.S. economy if, if, he, if he gets there. So morally, I'm on board uh, with, with the Democrats and always have been uh, personally. And uh, financially, um, I, 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 don't, I, don't think I don't think they're in the right spot. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm a zebra. Uh, in this political race. But I, but I do think that, uh, I think as we get to this election, I think it's going to be super close. It's typically the incumbents to lose. Yeah. Uh, and if, if Trump just gets his act together a little bit um, on the PR side and, and just elucidates timelines properly with what happened with the virus, I think he can convince the whole country uh, that he was lied to. He was lied to. Um, uh, and so, you know, maybe we could have contained this thing back in December when they knew there was human to human transmission and not all the way until the end of February. So yeah. anyway, I think there's there, there are plenty of things he could do to to move forward. And if you just think about uh, what I just said, you know, uh, Raul, many of our viewers, many of the people that follow Real Vision and uh, follow our conversations don't know basic things about, let's say, uh, the Chinese. If the Chinese invest in Uber or they invest in uh, pick a pick a U.S. startup, a big one, Slack, or that or they buy stocks here. Let's say they bought, you know, billions of dollars worth of stock uh, on March 23rd. If they make billions of dollars investing in the U.S. market uh, and they sell them and, and have these cap gains, whether they're short term or long term, do you know how much tax they pay in the U.S.? Zero. Not a penny. Wow. So. When I talk about leveling playing fields, like I can't believe that Chinese investors, both institutional and individual, don't pay U.S. taxes, but they use our system. They use our rule of law. And if someone wrongs them here, they try they adjudicate things in our court, uh, but they don't pay for our court system. We do. Uh, they don't pay our taxes. We do. So if Trump just does a few things where he says, I'm going to level the playing field on tax between domestic and foreign. That would raise huge amounts of tax taxes and, and from people that don't vote. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, then, and then if he labeled leveled the playing field in equity and bond registration in the U.S., if he just said everyone's going to adhere to the same rules, no one has a special deal. You can't that can't be seen as being racist. Right. <laughs> that that changes the calculus strategically for the United States around the world in such a big way. And I so, think those things are going to happen. Interesting. So to finish off, what are the top three trades you think over the next three to six months? So um, I believe, I actually believe that we're going to get a vaccine soon. Uh, okay. I know typically they take 18 months to two years. You've seen the Gates Foundation. You've seen Bill and Melinda 
uh, as of a month ago, they were saying we're not going to have a vaccine for eight, uh, for at least 18 months. And then a week later, they said, well, maybe it's 12 months. And last week they said, you know, they listened to the Oxford researchers who are telling our government behind the scenes that they think they can have at least 2 million doses of, the, of a vaccine put together by the end of September. And so I believe that the world scientists, especially the U.S. and Europe scientists, were the best. I know China's got great STEM graduates and this and that, but we have the best scientists in the world. And I think all of our efforts, we've dropped everything. We've dropped, the, we've dropped everything we've been working on to focus on the Wuhan virus. And so I think given the, the intense focus of the best scientists in the world, we're going to shorten the duration of that vaccine process uh, to as short as it can possibly be. And so I think we're going to have drugs that show to be efficacious in, in uh, containing symptoms and, and uh, improving outcomes. If you've noticed, there have been so many fewer ventilators or people going on ventilators lately uh, because the drug treatments that they've come up with, there are about four drugs that are working, are keeping people off the ventilator because the stats are once you get on a ventilator, you have an 80% yep. chance of dying, right? Um, so I'm very optimistic about the fact that we're going to get to a vaccine sooner rather than later. And I think, uh, therefore, this is a, a bit of a risky uh, answer, but I think those cuspier names that are hugely levered to whether they can withstand another 12 months of closure or maybe they're going to be open and maybe people are going to really come back and revisit these things quickly uh, and humans will adapt. So I would imagine those cuspier plays are more interesting. And I, and I mean hotels and I mean theme parks. So I would, I would be long, you know, we have a position in Six Flags uh, and I think, uh, I think people are going to go to regional theme parks as soon as we reopen our economy. So I, I think it could double from here. Yeah, I guess, you know, <clears throat> if that's your opinion, then you've got to look for the things with the most gamma, essentially, and, and those things are discounted massively. <clears throat> so the rate of change, even if it's a 30% improvement versus a catastrophe, that's right. Improve a lot, right? Yeah. We know this. So I'm, uh, and again, my answer is saying it is, it, this is a very risky proposition. This yeah. isn't uh, just a great value play that's going to do well over time. It's an option. Uh, it's, it's, it's a bit of a, an option, but you also know if you can look at their balance sheets and if they've got two years worth of cash on hand to be closed, then I think the option's mispriced if you follow. And that's why a, a bunch of mutual friends of ours, um, I think invested in the Carnival Cruise bond offering. Everyone's kind of look, starting to look at the same thing is, you know, if they get cash flows that go beyond two years, then their probability of success is reasonably high because as you rightly say, sure, People may not want to go back to cruises in such large numbers, but these things are priced for bankruptcy. So yeah, and when you think and when you think about human adaptability, the cruise lines won't go back to their to their prior operating standards. They will they will improve their now I don't own the cruise lines, but but yeah. I think they will they will dramatically improve. Their margins probably won't be the same because they're gonna spend a lot more money on sanitization on air filtration systems that, that pull viruses out of the air. They're going to have to do all these things. They're going to have to tell everyone that they're going to do all these things. One of the restaurants here in town immediately and, and so uh, uh, intuitively uh, put up plexiglass separators between all the tables. Right? Genius. Brilliant. Because it's full now already. Right? 
And so those kinds of things are going to happen. I think between booths, like just humans innovate and uh, we, we work through things. And so I think we're going to work through things quicker. I think the response has been big. Uh, I realize there's a valuation gap, but I do think that there are, there are things worth owning. So I, you know, we, we, we would own the, some of those cuspier things with gamma. Uh, and then we would also, uh, we'd also own some of the energy infrastructure plays that have just been decimated. Uh, for, because, the same, for the same reason. For the same reason, you just need to make sure there are no, you know, maturity cliffs or or liquidity uh, constraints on their balance sheets, and figure out how long the option is, uh, and then realize that we'll be back to some sense of normalcy in the next two years. And um, anything in the currency markets and the macro stuff? Or? Yeah, I mean, uh, Raul, the single best currency opportunity in the world today is Hong Kong. Good. So you haven't changed your mind. Oh no, we have uh, <laughs> that. That position is as big as it's ever been as we speak. Good for you, Kyle. Thank you, my friend. It's always great to catch up, hear your thinking, and we'll see how the rest of this, you know, few months evolve. I mean, it's a, I mean, it's fascinating, right? We're living history in in a truly extraordinary way. We thought we did that in in two thousand and eight. We, but now this is a different world. But let's see, let's see how we how it plays out. It will be really, really interesting. Thanks yeah, ever it's so a much. Pleasure, pleasure talking with you, Ralph. And uh, we'll speak to you soon. Take care. Hey there, since you got to the end, I'm guessing you liked the video. And that's probably because we don't just turn on a camera and film, we work really hard on getting the narrative flow just right. And that's why many finance companies are actually now hiring Real Vision to make videos for them. One of our recent client videos just hit 100,000 organic views on YouTube, and there were no kittens in sight. So if you want to find out how Real Vision can make a video for your company, just email us at customvideo at realvision.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.